welcome to another episode of Mormon Expression. Um, today, well, before we get into our topic for the day, um, just a reminder, we've got the the picnic coming up this Sunday at Wheeler Farm, and it's... Uh, the Sunday the what? Sunday the 9th. October 9th, for those who are listening. Later on. It's 2011, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, just bring a potluck dish, and we hope to see a lot of people there at the South Pavilion. Um, anything, any other announcements, John? Um, on November 18th, uh, Friday night, um, in Salt Lake City, the University of Utah campus, we will have the um, live recording of the episode of Mormon Fight Songs. For dummies. And sing along. Yep. So um, that will be lots of fun. All right. So t- tonight we've you, got... You forgot to introduce your lovely co-host. Oh, <laughs> I've, I really have a lovely co-host here, and it's John. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> and uh, we are privileged tonight to be able to talk to um, a guy named Chuck Burrow. Hello, Chuck. Hello. Uh, Chuck, I found out about you through a book, basically. A fan of Mormon Expression gave me a, a book called That Little Hardback, and it was uh, had your name on it. And it's full of a bunch of, um, basically, quotes. Like, what would you call these? Well, they're my thoughts over 50 years of time. Some of them came from when I was just 13 years old, and I've written things down all my life. So and just... I kind of collected them together. Yeah, and so I, I read through them, and I rather enjoyed it. And then I um, found you and told you that I enjoyed it, and we just started chatting a little, and I found out that you were... You've got kind of an interesting um, story and outlook on Mormonism. Is that right? Yes. I, I, it's interesting to me. <laughs> well, it sounds interesting to me. So where where did you start in Mormonism? Well, my mother was LDS. <clears throat> my father was basically uh, atheist, a sweet, good, living, uh, giving man, but he just didn't believe that, a, that somebody made the universe. And uh, my mother was a Mormon. And uh, when I was just a youth, we used to attend different churches in the neighborhood where we lived. There wasn't a Mormon church there. But when I was 12, my two brothers are younger than I. The three of us were baptized when I was 12. And from then on, we were active in the Mormon church. So you were, um, I guess, baptized. And did they make you wait a year before you could get the priesthood? Or did they... Did they give that to you right away, or I don't know how it worked. Uh, they gave it. They gave it to me pretty much right away. They they make you. Actually, I don't think they make anybody wait a year. No, the no? only wait is for the temple. Like if you get baptized as yeah. an adult, they'll give you the Melchizedek priesthood right away. Really? And a woman can be in it all her life and never and never get it. But you just walk She's, in the door, jump in the. Women are pond. still in their period of probation. <laughs> well, not. you know, in order to hold the priesthood, there's some need for testicles. I never have quite figured it out, but it's there. There's some magic powers within Yeah, them. there's something there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... We had, we had two daughters and three sons, so I lived through some uh, frustrations over that issue myself. Our oldest daughter planned all her growing up time. She wanted to be a missionary. Well, the rules are such that that doesn't happen very often because they make the girl wait until she's 21. By the time she's 21, usually that's gone by the wayside. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, if she does go when she's 21, she's going to return at 23, and all the male missionaries are going to be returning at 21. Mm-hmm. It's Ready unlikely to get they're going to marry a return missionary. It's a, it's a mess. Yeah, because she's an old maid by that time, the well, ripe old age mess, of 23. You know, and, and so uh, that needs to be fixed. Uh, mm-hmm. They need to go when they're 19, the same as the boys do. Mm-hmm. Of course, that might cause more problems out there in the field. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, if there are those kind of problems and, they, and we consider them problems, those are choices that those people should be able to make. The, the church shouldn't be controlling people to that degree. That's true. And we know it's plenty just, of couples who met um, on their mutual mission, so it really doesn't, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. <laughs> dissuade everyone anyway right now. Right. So you you got baptized when you were twelve, and then you you basically stayed active ever since. Um, you know, I'm even I'm even pretty much fully active now. So did you, I don't I don't believe a lot of the the foundative things that you're supposed to believe. Um, I've spent many years leading the music, for example. Uh-huh. It's a, that's a job you can do without using your own words, mm-hmm. and uh, so they're not afraid of me there. <laughs> Uh, they've become kind of afraid of me to teach adult classes. So, it's been interesting to me that I can often teach younger children, and they, they love the way I do that, but they're a little afraid of me with adults, and that's kind of interesting. That and, of course, I'm freer with the adults, so that's part of the reason for the fear. Now, mm-hmm. you're out in California, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And have you ever lived in Utah? Well, I went to BYU and graduated. Well, that, that doesn't count. BYU is like its own little... Like, well, it counts. Well, sort of. It's it's pretty. And bizarre. I have uh, I have two sons and a daughter that live in Utah with families. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, my son lives there in Lehigh with you guys. Oh, oh well, you and know. My, and my daughter lives across the lake in that uh, new community. What's it called? Eagle Mountain? Saratoga. Oh yeah, yeah, Saratoga, Saratoga Springs. Springs. <laughs> so, uh, do you think that um, being in California, uh, they're more tolerant than? Of, of, of your beliefs? Because it, it sounds like you're pretty open with sharing sort of your belief or lack thereof. I've become more open in the last, oh, five to seven years because uh, there was a need for me, a psychological need, I guess, to wait until my mother passed away. Right. Oh. Uh, yeah, that uh, reminds a me. A lot of-, of the things that I'm very open about now would have broken her heart. Yeah, I, I I recall a quote from your from your little book that said, um, "It is an impossible task for me to believe based only on the testimonial of someone, though it be even the mother who loves me." Yes, uh, someone but, loving you doesn't make them correct. Right, but, but obviously we have a tendency we have a tendency to give a lot more weight to a teacher who loves us, and so we often get misled. Because uh, our emotions are involved in uh, what we decide to believe as well as our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And emotion is not a good way to determine beliefs. Yeah. It no, just isn't. <laughs> no, no, it, it's not. But it, it does influence our behavior to a, to a great extent. You know, I, I like how you're talking about, um, you know, that you, you felt the compunction to wait. Because, you know, for a lot of people who leave the church or become more liberal in their belief, that struggle with their mothers and their wives and their husbands and their children is the paramount thing on their minds. And it's, it's, it's not so much about like metaphysics or anything. It's about that they really don't want to hurt people around them. And they don't want to harm the relationship. Well, at, at the same time, there was 
there was a need to be honest with my little mother. She's the sweetest little thing you ever met in your life. So I, I was. She knew that I was basically an atheist when she died. But I wasn't mouthing it around. You know, I didn't have it as a reputation. That's what I think would have hurt my mom mm. the most. Yeah, for me, it was a big struggle with my mother, too. And I sort of kept my lack of belief sort of secret from her. And then eventually, you know, we had to have that discussion. But I, I feel the same. I mean, I, I, for those who want to throw their hat in the argument on atheism or on, on religion, I'm happy to debate it. But I, I try not to force it on people who are just aren't interested in the discussion. That's a wise way to go. And I, uh, I don't have any desire to take away things from people that are of great value to them. Right. As, as long as the way they are using those things is a, is a positive. The, the Proposition 8 thing, yeah, I fought against that so, because they were damaging. They were, they were doing harm. That was, that was cruel. Mm -hmm. And when, when the church is cruel, I speak up. Now, they didn't allow me to speak on Proposition 8 in a sacrament meeting, <laughs> though, though it was talked about quite a lot in sacrament meetings. You know, you know it was. Yes. Mm -hmm. They would, and they would call us on the phone. Are you going to carry signs? Are you going to, you know, knock on doors and all of this stuff? You know, we, you could tell them a dozen times you weren't going to do that, and you're still getting the phone calls. But there was no uh, phone calls and no discussion on the other side of that issue. There was no, no attempt to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. So uh, one day in sacrament meeting, I got up to lead the closing song, and in that particular meeting, they. There had been quite a lot of talk about Prop 8 because the vote was coming up just the next Tuesday. And uh, they had even, somebody got up just before the closing song and and talked about they still had some signs left and they could pick them up in the parking lot, you know, signs to put in front of their house. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And I knew that I couldn't go up to the microphone, you know, and <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I knew that wasn't going to work. That That's not my personality anyway. But I got up to lead the music, and it wasn't planned. But I got up to lead the music, and the, the organist played the little prelude thing before you start singing. And I just walked out. Wow. And that brought about quite a lot of discussion over the weeks uh, after that. Of course, the vote was already over, and Prop 8 had won. But it did get a lot of people to talk to me. and. Uh, one of the most surprising things is how many people were glad that I had made that statement, mm -hmm. but they were silent themselves. And I've I found in my in my walk in the church, even even for the last forty years, very often I find people in the church that wish they could say what they wanted to say, but they have not. I don't know if if they haven't had the courage, but something keeps them from speaking out in a place where it's uncomfortable to do it. Mm -hmm. And they're glad that I said what I said. And people have come to me quite a few times and told me that. And you so, didn't even uh, have to say anything. Well, in that case, I didn't say anything, but th this would be like maybe in a high priest group, I would make a statement. Oh. And it would kind of fall on deaf ears in the, in the high priest group. But later, somebody would come to me who was a high priest and say, I'm so glad you said that. I wanted to say that for years. <laughs> and I've had that happen over and over and over. So they won't support you in public, but then they'll... Well, I think the well, church... they might, but, but they won't come out themselves that way, you know? Mm -hmm. It seems to be a pretty scary thing. It is. Yeah, I, I think I, most people in my circumstance, 
become inactive. Well, because it that's the safe way to handle it. I think I can do more if I stay active and honest. All my bishops always know, and yet they still give me jobs and etc. You know. Well, I, I think there's a wide diversity of opinion, much wider than people give the Mormons credit for. But Absolutely. I think I think there's been a cultural rise, probably basically since the 50s. I don't think it was in the early part of the church where where people just don't feel like they can express any sort of it doesn't even have to be a counter opinion it's just something outside the norm uh, you know even getting up and saying things like um you know i'm for like um food stamps you know most most uh members of the church wouldn't feel comfortable but i think there's a wide variety of people who think different things so we need more people to somehow without causing a riot being able to express those opinions. Maybe a riot or two wouldn't hurt on occasion. Well, you know, depending upon how serious the riot is, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, I don't know. I think that one of the reasons I got attracted to what you guys are doing is because it's very open expression, and I haven't noted you're being very negative at all. It's, oh, it's, you haven't listened to the right episode. Well, I, well, you know, I'm not saying that you don't have some negative feelings, but you do have a pretty good way of handling yourselves, and I, it's something I kind of appreciate. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, uh, you know, th there's a there's a debate, a journalistic debate that's out there about whether or not journalists should be like the old, you know, Edward Murrow style and try to pull their opinion completely out of what they're doing. Um, we fall on the side of it's better to be transparent um, and let people know where we're at, at the same time trying to honor the voices of other people. Now, that doesn't mean we won't ar argue with the opinion, but we try to be ve step very clear of any kind of personal attack or or some you know sort of flaming like that. And that that's something we strive for. It's it's not easy. It's it's difficult to do. Um, and I think most faithful LDS people would find what we do repugnant, but we think it's important. Yep. You know, that's a strong word, but uh, I understand what you're saying. I, I think that it's going to become less repugnant I hope for us so. to be open. I think in the early days of the church, people were much more open. Well, and I, I can tell you that our downloads are the people who listen to us is much bigger than the ex-Mormon community. So right. I and, uh, you know, my estimation based on sort of feedback I get is about half the people who listen to our podcast are active members of the church. So I gave a talk in a sacrament meeting about five years ago, and I was actually taking the advice of one of my former bishops from many years ago, who was a, a wonderful man. Essentially, all the bishops I've known have been really good people. But this bishop said, Chuck, you need to take a year off from the church. <laughs> You need to learn what it's like not to have it in your life so you can have that comparison, you know. He advised that, but I was raising five children then. It wasn't a time to do to, to have my own little uh, fling, you know what I mean? Yeah. So after the children were all gone and after my mother had passed away, I got up in a sacrament meeting and I, I told the members of my ward, a lot of people that I loved there, that I was going to take a year off, like a sabbatical. And I spent a year, I visited 52 other religions. And each week I 
wrote reports. I wasn't planning on a book. I was just writing the reports to send to my friends. But then those friends, oh, you have to make a book out of this. So that was my first book. It's called Trip Around the Sun. And each chapter is my experience with one religion or another. And most of them are Christian denominations. But I went to four different Jewish congregations, the uh, <clears throat> the most liberal Jews, the uh, Reformed Jews, uh-huh. and then the conservative Jews and the Messianic Jews. You know what they are? Christians. There are Jews that believe that Jesus is the uh, Messiah, which is really interesting. Their meeting was fabulous. Wow. And then the uh, Orthodox Jews. I visited all four Jewish. Th- those were very interesting. I visited two different Buddhist congregations, the Hindus. I-, I visited the same one twice on the Hindus. And uh, Russian Orthodox and and uh, Baha'i faith and, and, you know, Christian science and Scientology and and two or three different Baptist churches and Methodists and Presbyterians and just all of them. What, what, a really, really interesting year for me. What, what did you, um, what were some of the most interesting ones or do any stand out particularly for you as being well, there's, impactful? There are probably a half a dozen of them that stand out for one reason or another. Uh, most of them don't stand out for any negative reasons, but there were a couple that did. Um, Southern Baptist, one of the Southern, <laughs> one of the wrong. Southern Baptist congregations. You know, another Southern Baptist that I visited was just a real pleasant meeting. But this one, I went to an adult Sunday school class with the Southern Baptists. See, I have an appreciation for a lot of Mormon doctrine because it's a much more positive doctrine than most people have, even though there are many things you and I could fuss about about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It, it it does a good job of a lot of things, okay? So I'm in this Sunday school class, and and uh, teachers teaching the lesson, and they started talking about the Jews. And it was a very positive discussion. They were laughing and having fun and talking about how the Jews have so much fun. And they said, you know, the Jews, they love to have feasts. They love to have big dinners and things like that. And then somebody said... Hey, they're sort of like Baptists. And everybody laughed. And I guess I was looking, uh, had a questioning look on my face because the teacher said, you know, our visitor, he he looks like he has questions. (laughs) And I said, uh, well, you know, I do have questions, but my questions are hard. (laughs) And they all laughed a little bit. The teachers, oh, we love hard questions. Ask it, we love hard questions. (laughs) Well, they didn't know what they were getting into, I don't think, but... I said, well, you're talking about the Jews being like the Southern Baptists because they have parties and dinners and things like that. But I said, isn't it your belief? I'm going to say our because I think it's friendlier. Let's just talk about us as a group here. Isn't it our belief that all of those Jews are going to be tortured and burned in hell forever and ever? How can we believe that about them and be laughing about their dinners? Well, what was the answer? (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, there's really not a very good answer. It's really not a very good answer. And and I I asked them then about my father. I don't think it was right away, but soon in the class. I said, "My, my dad, he was an atheist all his life, and he passed away about four years ago. Um, What is his lot in, in the eternal realm? And 
almost apologetically, the teacher said, well, he's, he's burning in hell forever. He said, but you know, he may have believed it sometime. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, even just before he died, he died of cancer in my house. I watched him suffer terribly. And I said, I asked my dad, I said, now that you know you're dying, I said, have you had any thoughts that are, that are different from what you've expressed to me before, you know, like believing in God? And my dad said, well, some people say God is the universe. He said, I believe in the universe. And I said, no, I, I don't mean that. I mean uh, like a, a person, a person who loves, loves us. He said, oh, no, I, I don't believe in a God like that. I've never believed in a God like that since I was six years old. <laughs> so they admitted to me that he is then burning in hell forever and ever being tortured forever and my first question was uh, how does a punishment like that accomplish anything you you're not trying to bring about repentance you're not trying to make my dad into a better person what is this punishment for what's the purpose of this non-ending torture and there's not a very good answer for that but then I said well my mother I said now she was a lot different from my father because she believed in Jesus with all her heart and Whenever she talked about Jesus, tears came to her eyes. It was just something that was an important part of her life. Oh, well, then she's in heaven. And I said, well, she was a Mormon. <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> Dead silence. So I said, I see. I said, you don't have to talk because your silence says a lot. I said, the truth is, you teach that all one has to do to be saved is accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, but it's a lie. You require a lot more than that. You require them to get all of his personality exactly like you want it to be. And the Mormons think he's the son of another God, and so you reject them and say they believe in a different Jesus. Well, let me tell you about the Jesus that the Mormons believe in. He's the guy that was crucified on the cross that day, that sweat blood from every pore in the Garden of Gethsemane for the sins of the world. I said, now, who is this other Jesus that you guys worship? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think we're talking about the same Jesus. We might believe something different about him from what you do, but it's the same Jesus, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, my mother believed in that Jesus. Are you telling me she's burning in hell forever? And one of the ladies in there said, well, it, it's not a personal thing. My, my own father is in the same circumstance. He's burning in hell forever. <laughs> oh. Anyway, oh, at the end of that class, I bore a little testimony. And I can tell you that I really believe what I said, okay? Even though I don't believe there's a God that made the universe. I don't believe, you know, the basis for our religion. I don't believe. But I believed what I told her. I said, no matter what turns out to, true, uh, to be true, I want you to know this. And I looked her in the eye. I said, there is no way your little father is being burned in hell forever and ever. That is not happening, I said. And she just bawled. Huh. That is not happening. And I said, and if there was a God who either did that or even put up with that, I said, not only would I not worship him with you, I would hate his guts. How can you love such a person as that? I'm with you. I bet they weren't, though. 
Well, interestingly, they sent me to their minister. Uh, their, their, you know, quote, sacrament meeting was after Sunday school. So I got to go to the meeting and hear the minister speak. And uh, interestingly, his topic was that all of God's will will be done. That we do not have the power to thwart his will. I thought that was very interesting. So afterwards, when there was time and I got to talk to the minister, and I had found out where it was in my own Bible, I took his Bible, which was a King James Version, and I showed him a scripture, and I wanted him to discuss it with me. And the scripture says, And it is my will that none be lost. Now, is all of his will going to be done? If all of his will is going to be done, then none will be lost, and there's no reason for this hell. Now, that was a stump or two. But. <laughs> well, he's, a, he's a poor Southern Baptist. He's, he's, <laughs> he was a smart guy, but... but he, he hadn't no, been to I'll seminary. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't armed against your, your, your left-handed <laughs> attack, so... Wasn't quite armed against that, yeah. But that, that was one of the kind of bad experiences. On the other hand, it was, it was probably the best uh, sermon I had ever heard. I mean, the guy was so prepared. He had visual aids and lots of laughter and humor. It was it was absolutely a wondrous performance. Yeah, that's for for me as I've been to other services. Um, you know, there's a lot of great speakers in the LDS tradition, but there's a lot of the other kind too. And I'm I'm always like taken aback by how well prepared people so, are to deliver their, their. You know, he's full time minister. He spends a whole week on that sermon. You right, know? they're good at it. They're prepared. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what they do for a living. Yeah, so yeah. So they they probably enjoy it. So going around the sun, what what was your big takeaway from the the experience as a whole? You no, know, I wrote in the back of the book uh, a, a kind of an answer to that question. That uh, what was my conclusion? And uh, it's that I don't like exclusive religion. Hmm. But I do like inclusive religion, religion that doesn't try to set themselves apart as correct and everybody else is wrong, religion that's just there to serve the people and that believe that everybody else's belief is just as valid as theirs is, and everybody's on a different part of, of a path toward what they're trying to accomplish, and we're not mad at you if you're not on exactly the same path as we are. We just want to work together toward a better world. That kind of religion I, I feel very positive about. You know, and the foundations of the LDS movement, Smith, Joseph Smith in particular, embraced that theology so much. It's Let them worship how, where, or what they may. Well, and even, you know, he was so forgiving to even people who had, who had apo been apostates, and he was inclusive, and, and um, I mean, don't get me wrong, he had his bombastic moments, but it's, it's unfortunate that the likes of Young sort of took it in another direction. I think I think Young is where the Negro doctrine came from. Yeah. For example, uh, I think he was a very prejudiced man. On the other hand, when I read an awful lot of Young, I have an awful lot of admiration for him too. You know, he was a he was a good man uh, uh, that was in some ways uneducated. Yes. You you, you think he was a good man? Brigham Young? Yeah, because every time I read anything <laughs> that he wrote. I, I come away with a different conclusion about him. 
I just don't. I, I I haven't found those those quotes. I guess that would that would point me in that direction. Well, uh, in, not too long ago, I was interviewed in Utah by another group there, uh, similar to you guys, a smaller group. And, I think uh, I think they're the ones who gave was, me the book. Yeah, it could be. And on a, it was on conference weekend, and my little grandson and my son that lives there in Lehigh. And I and my son that lives in Salt Lake, the, the four of us, went to the priesthood session on Saturday night in the, in the big new, what do they call the big new building? Conference center. Yeah, the conference center, which is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we listened to all those talks, okay, by general authorities. And there was a lot of advice in those talks. And because it was a priesthood session, there's a little more openness than maybe in the general session. And uh, I thought of all the advice that they gave us as being pretty darn good advice. But somebody was talking about, uh, you know, all the false things we get from the church and so on in this meeting. And I pointed out that I thought those men, by and large, almost entirely, are good men in the business of service. Uh, Almost all of them could be a good deal more successful not being a general authority if you measure success by dollars and things like that. They're people that are in it for the service. And I also think our, our politicians, they're, they're conservative politicians that just make me want to scream. But I think most of them in both parties are servants of the people. They believe differently, and so they serve people in ways we may not like. But I think most of them are servants of the people. They really they really do believe in doing good, even they, when they're not doing good. Right, they and still, they believe that they, they are doing believe, good. They believe they are doing good, and I think they're basically good people. And I think Brigham Young was someone who dedicated his life to service to his fellow man. Uh, he had a tremendous amount of power, and you know that corrupts people. So I wouldn't think that it couldn't corrupt him um, you know, coming across the plains, he talked about his tobacco chew, you know, how it tempted him and he'd pull it out of his pocket and say, who's tougher, me or you? Well, at least for some time, that was tougher than him. <laughs> well, some of these some of these other temptations, you know, on the Negro doctrine, when some of the arguing started happening because some people in the church didn't like that doctrine, and Brigham Young finally said, let me say this finally. If a man have so much as one drop of Negro blood, he can in no wise hold the priesthood. That that's the end of this discussion. Mm-hmm. So you know how 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 is that? Well, I, I don't know. I I, I think that's yielding to a, a temptation. I think he I think he didn't hate Negro people. I think he believed there was a time to come, uh, like in Jesus's time, they taught only the Jews, and then later the the others got the gospel. And I think he actually believed that their time was to come later. And I don't think he hated them, but it still comes out being the same thing. Yeah, that that could be. So I want to go back um, in your life a little bit and explore a little bit more your your faith journey and how you kind of arrived where you were. Now, did did you get married in the the temple or did you serve a mission? Um, I served a mission, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, 1959 to 61. And would you count yourself at that time kind of a full Orthodox believer? I was until I got there. 
(laughs) (laughs) What happened? Oh, gosh. You want the whole story? (laughs) Well, the the interesting part. Well, let me tell you parts of the story. (laughs) I I, I heard on one of your little discussions a little humor about masturbation. Masturbation is part of my story. So uh-huh. I'll include that. You and everybody else, I think. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the temple and some other things. I grew up in a little branch of the church. I told you I was baptized when I was 12. That was into a little branch. It wasn't a ward, just a branch. So we had a branch president instead of a bishop. And when it was time for me to go on a mission, I was the first one who had ever gone. So this little branch was just... The enthusiasm you could cut with a fork. They were so excited about me going on a mission. Okay, now it's time for me to have my little interview with the bishop. Just for reference, about what year is this? 1959 maybe. Okay. Somewhere in there. This might have been 1958 because there was some delays involved, which I'll tell you about. So uh, the branch president, who was a sweet, I would say a shy man, but a sweet, servant, serving guy, just a wonderful guy. Love him to this day. He's probably dead now, but, but anyway, uh, the, the, the branch president had to interview me, and he had a list of questions that he was supposed to ask me. And one of the questions was, uh, do you have a problem with masturbation? Well, I said, well, I do, I do that sometimes. Now, I don't think that's the answer he wanted. <laughs> I think they like you to just say, no, I don't have a problem with that. Just go on to the next question. I uh-huh. think that's really what they want, but I didn't learn that until much later. <laughs> so I just told him the truth. And he said, well, but but you've licked it, haven't you? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I've never done that. <laughs> that really happened. <laughs> of course, he meant I, I licked the problem, but... <laughs> I thought he was asking me if I'd licked it. I mean, that's what I thought he was asking me. And I remember feeling a little guilty for telling him no because I had tried to do that. I just very well, you know. So that was a little bit of an embarrassing thing. Well, because of that and no other questions, just because of that one question, the stake authorities decided I needed to wait six months before I went on my mission. Oh, dear. Now... That six months was rather painful because they didn't tell the congregation why I wasn't going on my mission. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably thought I was messing with girls or something. I don't know what they thought, but it was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And six months later, I had a, an interview with the same branch president. And, and do you have a problem with masturbation? My answer was no. No, sir. And then he went right on to the, he didn't, he didn't ask any questions about it all. He went right on forward, you know. Then they sent me to the stake president and he asked pretty much the same question. And I said, no, and I think that's the answer he wanted too. <laughs> but, but the answer was still yes. Okay. So I went on my mission. Now, I went to the East Central States and the mission president there and his wife were wonderful people and his, his wife testified to us at the dinner table there that when it was our turn to go upstairs and meet with president of the mission, that he was an inspired man and, and he's been talking to God before you get up there to determine who your first companion is going to be and where you're going to go for your, uh, the first part of your mission. Now, I was pretty excited at this time, but 
I had had another experience in Salt Lake City, which I'll tell you about later. Remind me if I forget, because it's important in there. It's, it's different subjects, so I'll go back to it. Anyway, the mission president had a map on the wall, and he went up to the map. It almost looked like I was looking at the back of him, so I couldn't tell you for sure, but it almost looked like he went up there with his eyes closed and pointed to the map <laughs> and, and picked my uh, companion little elder up in West Virginia that I would go and, and start my mission with. Now, in the mission, in the mission then, the rule was, now you guys are younger than me, so you probably don't know about this. The rule was missionaries had to sleep in the same bed. What? They were not allowed to sleep in separate beds. Oh, okay. And my guess is that's because, you know, you're not going to masturbate if your missionary companion's sitting there right beside you. So that's my guess is the reason. They never told us the reason, but they told us we had to sleep in a double bed together, not in separate beds. Did now, that most missionaries strange? didn't follow that rule, but that was the rule, okay? <laughs> so Even on my first and night wives of my didn't mission, sleep together at that we were, time, did they? We were in one bed. Now, I was very excited. This is the first night of my mission. I couldn't sleep. So when my companion started masturbating, there's no way I didn't know it. The bed was <laughs> bouncing all over hell and back. Oh. <laughs> this is the first night of my mission. It's the one God had told my mission president to send me to. Okay. And I had to wait six months before I went on my mission because I was honest about masturbation. Okay. Now, I've talked to many missionaries. We have missionaries living in our house right now. And we've had them for a year, you know, a dozen different missionaries. And I talk quite openly to all of them. Every one of those missionaries knows I'm an atheist. And they all love me. You know, we have a good relationship. They love living here. Missionaries fight over being able to live here, <laughs> you know. So I've, told, I've talked to a lot of missionaries about this very issue. Uh, four of them were in my office just last week. And I, I looked at them and I said, let's be honest. I said, all four of you have masturbated on your missions. And they all looked a little shocked. And I said, you know, one of you could, could say you haven't. And I said, and that would put a pressure on another one to say it. And, and I might even believe there could be one, uh, maybe one in a hundred and maybe one of you. But if two of you said you weren't, I, I would just know that there was some lying going on. Anyway, I told these missionaries, they didn't have to worry about that anymore. And I know there was one of those missionaries. He was not. He was always not very happy. From that day on, he's been the happiest darn missionary I ever saw. <laughs> he's been freed from that. You know, it's like that's no longer going to kill him. And I told him, look, any amount of self-control somebody can gain, it might be a, a certain amount of value to them. Uh, it's possible that too much self-control over something that natural might even not be good for somebody. But I said, for 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 bottom line, don't worry about it. You know, we could make a rule that it's that it's against the rules to take a dump. <laughs> Somebody could say, "Well, but if you don't take a dump, it's just going to happen naturally." I said, "Same with the, same with the sperm. If you don't do it, it's just going to happen naturally." But the rule isn't against dumping. The rule is in against doing it on purpose. You know, you can't sit down and push. Now, if it just happens naturally in your bed, okay, that's all right. But there's none of this pushing thing, you know, and especially if you enjoy it. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it's just the stupidest damn rule. I, you know, it's just dumb. And I, I was able to help quite a few missionaries while I was on my mission with that because, uh, you know, I became a traveling elder and a lot of missionaries learned that they could come to me and talk about that in a, in a sane way. And it was to advantage to them. And I think that's part of where I learned how to be of service the people in the church who have questions or problems or things they don't believe or whatever like that. because It's so sad because, you know, when I was a missionary, you know, and I, I tried my best to, to avoid it and that, but I, I, I truly felt like a sexual deviant. Um, yeah, so did I. <laughs> um, and and I, because I had no comprehension that it was normal behavior. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I thought it, I thought it was rather abnormal. So I mean, that's what's so sad about it is you have things that are just normal and natural, and like you say, not that big of a deal. Um, but we turn it into this big psychological crisis that has sort of psychic undercurrents of baggage for years and years to come. I, oh, I can yeah. guarantee you, this missionary that was standing in my office last week is going to be a heck of a lot better missionary on the second half of his mission than he was on the first. I, God bless because you. that's I wish, out of the way. I wish there were more of you. You probably did more good for him than all the, all the zone conferences he's going to listen to and, and all that. Well, so- uh, even, even my wife has noticed the difference in him, and I told her what had happened. You know? Wow, that's amazing. It's, <laughs> it's, and he was, he was smiling during that conversation. A big old smile came on his face. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so what was anyway, your Salt Lake story that you were going to yeah, the Diane. other, I had a, a cousin's cousin who was uh, getting ready to go to the seminary in San Diego to become a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. And that's what he wanted to do. He had been a choir boy in the, or not a choir boy. What do they call the, the little boys? The, the that altar boy? Catholic. Yeah, an altar. He'd been an altar boy. And, and he wanted, he, he was a little older than me. And he wanted to be a Catholic priest. Well, when I got my mission call, he came to Riverside where I lived to visit me, which we did often. We were pretty good friends. He wasn't my cousin. He was my cousin's cousin. But he came and, and he wanted to tell me some things so that I would know what I was getting into. And uh, he told me some things about the temple. Well, I told him, I said, John, I said, this, that's ridiculous. I said, <laughs> that kind of stuff doesn't go on in the Mormon temple. I said, You're, somebody's been lying to you. I said, there's so many lies told about the church, you know. <laughs> then I went to Salt Lake City, and in those days, you didn't go to the temple until just before you got sent out on your mission at the end of your little training session, which only lasted a couple of weeks because I didn't have a foreign language to learn. After those two weeks, you, at the like the last day or so, you go to the temple and you go through the temple. And it was the Salt Lake Temple in my case, which is a live thing. Oh, and I have to tell you, the other things I was told about the temple by members of my little branch there, people that love me and people that I love, they wouldn't tell me anything when I'd ask questions about the temple. They'd just say, well, we can't talk about that. But, but I'll tell you this. It'll be the most wonderful experience that you have ever had. So I knew from what they told me that it was going to be better than The Sound of Music and it was going to be better than Disneyland. Okay, I knew it was going to be better than both of those. Okay. Well, what I found is that these people needed acting lessons. You know, and, and, the, and, the, and what went on in the temple was precisely and exactly 
what my cousin's cousin, who was going to be a Catholic priest, told me. And you went he through. Told me you went through exactly the truth. You went through in pre nineteen sixty. You had the hymn and everything. We uh, the hymn doesn't happen every time, but I saw it. That's the only time I ever saw it in yeah. the in the terrestrial room. Most people most room. people have never seen the the. Or most even, people have never seen it. Have you seen it? No, no. That's way before no. my time because you know they talk about the change in nineteen ninety, but there was a change in the sixties, and you got in before that that change. I heard the hymn. I I don't remember it being called the hymn. I remember it being called the song. I think, but. But everybody was singing something different. I mean, you know, there's a hundred people in there, and they're all singing something different. And it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like the speaking in tongues that you hear. Everybody was speaking real words, but they were all speaking different words. Well, how did they know what to sing? Well, because it, they, well, they, they whatever they the feel like. So they just so they would just sing whatever they felt like. Yeah. Some of, some of them I could recognize that some of them were singing Mormon hymns. Really? Uh, others were just singing stuff I'd never heard before. But a hundred <laughs> different things being sung, so you couldn't, you know, it was it was really like Babel. It really oh was. Oh my goodness, I never knew now, that. Uh, uh, now I will tell you that did not bother me. I don't care about innocuous things that don't damage people. Okay, that that hymn didn't hurt anybody. I that, it, I thought it was weird, but it didn't it didn't bother me like symbolically slitting my throat and cutting my stomach open and cutting my chest open, those things bothered me a tremendous amount. Mm -hmm. If I'd have had enough courage, I would not have continued on to my mission, but I didn't have that much courage. I was just a boy. Well, by the time they put you, know? you through all the the going away process and the MTC, and then they send you to, to the temple, and you're already out there. And you don't even understand it. You're like, what What did I just, what was, what was going on in there, you know? <laughs> Well, I've talked to a lot of people who had that experience and didn't know what was going on that it doesn't bother anything like me. And I think it's because I had been told the truth by the big liar <laughs> and lies by all the truth tellers. Mm -hmm. You know? Yep. John had told me the exact truth. I mean, he had the details down. And he didn't do it in a negative way. He just said, they will symbolically say, if you tell the secret handshake or the name of the handshake or what it symbolizes, that you will accept and you, you draw your finger across your throat, that your life should be taken and your hands go down to your side. He told me all those things in detail. Well, I was calling him a liar the whole time. Not, not a liar, that, that he was in error the whole time. So I went on my mission with carrying that baggage, and then I had this companion masturbation thing, and it didn't bother me that he masturbated. I felt sorry for him. <laughs> but it bothered Did me that, ever... they'd made, that they'd made me wait six months because I was honest. Uh -huh. Did, did you <laughs> and ever... that's the only reason, because all the other missionaries had masturbated too, and they came on their missions without waiting six months. Right. That's... And I know they did because I've talked to so many of them. Mm-hmm. That that's the uh, the problem, really, with some of the um, some of the rules, especially. Well, the only experience I know of is is in Mormonism because that's what I'm familiar with. But people will take it so seriously. Some people will, and they'll feel horrible about themselves. And then other people, they'll just say, "Well, I I can't do that." So you know, whatever. And they won't take it seriously, and they'll feel great, and they'll be zone leaders and. And it's just sad because the people that really take it seriously are the ones who feel mi miserable. <laughs> it's, 
Yeah, interesting you should say zone leader. We didn't have zone leaders when I was on my mission. We had supervising elders, which they call district leaders now. And we had traveling elders, which they call zone leaders now. Now, when I became a traveling elder, I had two-thirds of the state of Tennessee, a big area. you know, And I had about 40 missionaries in the zone. And uh, getting that job was kind of interesting because we had a new mission president. There was a mission president change in our mission. And when he came and had a conference that included all of us missionaries in our zone, he interviewed each one of the missionaries. And one of his questions was the masturbation question again. Did you have mission president ask you that? Me? No, yeah. Not directly, no. Yeah, he did. He asked the question directly, do you have a problem with masturbation? And I said no. But I was lying, and I wasn't feeling comfortable about lying, and I probably showed on my face a bit. Okay? And so we got through that interview, and then afterwards, after he was through interviewing all the other missionaries that he was going to interview, I went back, knocked on the door, and walked in, and I said, uh, President, I lied to you. And he said, masturbation. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And we talked about it, you know. And he said, well, what we're going to do is I'm going to call you every week, Elder Burrow. I'm going to call you every week and see how you're doing. So you're going to be expecting me to call you every week. So he called me every week on the phone. And every week I told him I'd, I'd been fine for a week. And I said, it's because you're calling, you know. So week after week, I was telling him I was fine. Well, I wasn't fine. I really did try, but I wasn't fine. I, I was lying to him. Guess what happened next? You got the big call? I got the call to be the zone leader. He, he thought you were the only the one. The traveling who, elder. The only one who wasn't a wanker. He, he's, he's now involved with me. He loves me. Oh, yeah. see? That's what, that's psychologically, that's what happens. Hmm. He had helped me to overcome this problem that he knew all the missionaries had. Wow, what a leader this guy will be. Yeah. Hmm. So I became the traveling elder. Well, as a traveling elder, I, I think I did a lot of good. We baptized more people than anybody else in the mission for one thing, but also missionaries in that zone became a lot freer in a lot of ways. So... I think it was a good thing for me, and I think it was a good thing for the missionaries. Well, great. But interestingly, I didn't plan that. It just happened. So <laughs> so after your mission, and you, you went to BYU a after that? Uh, I went, I went uh, to BYU before my mission and after my mission. And then how long until you met your wife? I had uh, a failing marriage first. Oh, okay. And I, I had met her before my mission, and... After my mission, we got married, and uh, it only lasted two and a half years, and that was because I, I said it was going to last two years come hell or high water. <laughs> that ended, and the marriage I'm in now has gone for 42 years. Wow. And they were both temple marriages. Are, are you still sealed to both women? No, she, uh, she remarried in the temple oh. many years later. She finally married... Uh, in the temple to a really good man. They've been married now about eight or nine years. And well, good for her. Oh, that's so, good. That's cool. So your, 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 is your wife on board with you and your beliefs, or is she still a, is she still a 
she's never said so. Um, I've tried to be awfully honest with her, but, you know, it was kind of dishonest in the beginning because I had inklings when we got married, you know, I was, I was already pretty sure that I didn't believe a lot of things and I, I didn't reveal that to her. Well, so I, that was, that was a bit unfair. I had some of the same uh, things, but I was trying, you know, I was, yeah, so was I, but, you know, you know so, so I, I don't feel too bad because I was trying to make it work. And even though some things I just couldn't buy, I was trying to buy it. So yeah. that that's probably the circumstance that I was in then. I was hoping that, it that, was, yes. that I was wrong. Yes. I, I was hoping that I was wrong. You know? Mm -hmm. I agree. But I'm a scientist. I'm a physicist. I've been a physicist all my life. How does a physicist put the universe together with a person? <laughs> no, how do you do that? I I can't. We had to have we had to have the universe pretty much the way it is now before any living thing could come about. And we have we have this doctrine that there was a living thing without the universe that put it together. Well, that's you, impossible. But you what know about what, I, what about multiverses? Isn't there some kind well, of Well, yeah, that, that that I'm a physicist and to me that multiverse thing is a, is like a religion. It's totally ridiculous. <laughs> they don't teach that in any physics classes in any university. That's just that's just metaphysics. I ah. I agree with you and you know I I God bless them. I hear a lot of that's the second time I've said that. Maybe I'm God getting religion. Bless them. Uh I, you know I hear a lot of these LDS people believing LDS people who believe in evolution and uh, that's nice, but they believe that God is a human being. I don't quite understand how they believe that mankind evolved from lower life forms, and yet the creator of the lower life forms was a being that evolved from those same lower life. I just can't wrap my yeah. head around this stuff. Well, mo most Mormons I know that say they believe in evolution don't really believe we have non-human ancestors. They believe it for other species. But the evidence is but so... But they don't, they don't believe it for us. I, I you know? can't imagine how scientifically you can accept the one and dismiss the other. I, I don't either. You know, so, that, that's obvious. Well, and hum humans know, are special. I know doctors in the, in the church that poo-poo evolution. And it's hard for me to believe that they don't understand that <laughs> that's the truth. I, yeah, I, I can't. I'm, I, I guess it shows how apostate my mind is, how... How enwrapped in heresy that I can no longer understand how these yeah. guys puzzle it out. But I, oh well. I have a question about one of your quotes from your little book. Um, okay. It says, Light is a good thing, too much of it blinds the eyes. Truth is a good thing, too much of it clouds the mind. What, I like that. I, what does that mean? How, how does truth well, cloud you know, your mind? I could, I could give a whole hour talk on that. But let me give you a five-minute one instead. <laughs> um, science, as a goal, is about finding truth. That's what it's about. It doesn't care about good and evil at all. Now, that doesn't mean that scientists don't care about good and evil. They may care a great deal about that. They're people. But science doesn't care about good and evil. Science cares about truth. And some truths are not nice. Okay, some truth is nice and some truth is not nice. Now, religion, on the other hand, forgive me for saying this in front of a lot of Mormons, but religion is not about truth. It never has been. They reject truth almost like a profession, like evolution. Religion is about good and evil. It's about 
discovering a better way to live with our neighbors. It's about raising families. It's about a better way to live. It's not about truth. It's about good, if it's a good religion. Religion can be used for all kinds of evil, too, of course. But a good religion is about goodness. It is not about truth. And if I could if I could have all the advantages of a good religion, like I think the Mormon religion is, and recognize that it doesn't have to be true to be good, there's a lot to be gained from that. I wouldn't I've got five kids that have grown up to be adults and they're all responsible, happy, love their kids, have wonderful lives going on. I wouldn't want to try to accomplish that without the church. So are are they still all believers? They're all they're all active and some of them are are more uh conversational with me about some of these issues. Then others, uh, well, in particular, there's there's one boy that has a lot of trouble with it. He he really wants to help his daddy, you know. Oh. <laughs> and he's a wonderful boy. I mean, he just uh, he's a scientist too. He's a smart kid, you know. Wonderful kid, as wonderful as anybody you'd ever want to meet. But he's 130 percent Mormon. I've tried to deprogram him, but that's not going to happen. Well, see, this is my fear. Maybe and, you can help me sort of understand this. You know, we talked in the last few minutes about like this masturbation and that sort of guilt and shame it installs. And that's just sort of a metaphoric standing for all sorts of things the church does. How, how do you sort of reconcile, you know, raising the children in this thing, which may be a good way to raise kids, but they're going to have all this psychological baggage that they're going to take seriously and have that shame and have those um, feelings of low self-worth. I mean, how, how did you work that dilemma? Well, none of my kids are going to go through those problems. About, about sexuality, maybe, but what well, about... Well, you know, I mean, if my, if, if my boys masturbate on their missions, and I assume two out of three of them did, okay, <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to suffer like that. They know my stories. So you, you, you kind of inoculated them against those uh, things. I would say that's true. And said, oh, don't take this stuff over here seriously. That's well, take the issue of rape, for example. The Book of Mormon says, if you, if you rape my daughter, you've taken away her virtue. That's the most ridiculous statement <laughs> ever written in the, any scripture anywhere. You know, there's no way you can take away someone's virtue. They have to give it up. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yes, I agree. The one, the one doing the raping, he's losing his virtue. Yeah, exactly. But, but the victim's not losing any virtue. Okay. So I asked both of my daughters once when they were old enough to answer the question, you know, what would, because this was when the, the issue of abortion had become a real big discussion point, you know, and the ERA was being fought for and some of those political things. And, and I said, uh, what would you do if, if you became pregnant, pregnant by a rape? And both of them, without any hesitation, said they would have the baby. But they said they probably would have it adopted out, but that would be something for them to decide, decide over a period of time. But the, the option of abortion was a no for both of them. Uh-huh. Now, I thought that was fine. For me, even the option of abortion would have been acceptable, but my two daughters said that's not what they would do. And my oldest daughter, who's a very smart woman, she said, well, Dad, when a rape happens, maybe somebody should die but it shouldn't be the baby. Hmm. 
<laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So, <laughs> so you said inoculate. See, I inoculated my, if my daughter were raped, I don't want her to feel guilty at all about that. Right, right. See? Yeah, the, yeah. There's and some... if my boy uh, poops on his mission, I don't want him to feel guilty about that. <laughs> Most missionaries poop. And not only that, but they do it on purpose. Okay. It's <laughs> <This> concerted effort. <laughs> And sometimes it's pleasant. Have you ever tried to make it last a little longer? <laughs> you're, you're right. It it can be pleasant. I, I will I will acknowledge that point. <laughs> okay, so yeah, my, my kids don't suffer like most kids do with those kinds of things, and I won't let the church hurt them in that way if I can help it. So in your but years, what, what, but what about the the idea that your son, um, you said, was trying to kind of get you back to the faith. So well, there... if, if I have any kids that have suffered, it's him. But he, he wouldn't see himself that way, I, I take it. He... Well, most, well, most people who you are... You know, he's, he's one self-controlled fella, so he, <laughs> he may really not have for the whole two years. Well, you know, 5% he, of the no, population... He, he didn't, and I, I believe him. He's a very honest guy. So it may be that that he doesn't have to feel too guilty because he is he is down the line so much. I mean, those he and his wife go to the temple a couple times every week, you know. Wow. They're real active Mormons. Now he married this gal. He didn't get married until he was forty. Wow. Actually just a couple months before he was forty. And he married a woman who had been married before a couple of times, and she had five children, up to sixteen years old and down to like five years old. And they've had a sixth one themselves together now and they're just as happy as clams i mean they're the sweetest little family you'd ever want to meet they live in salt lake city and very very happy to be 100 percent active mormons well and it, and it does i mean it really does work for some people and some people absolutely enjoy it mm -hmm. so i mean and i don't have any problem with that it's just the idea um you know that, that he's concerned for your soul is sort of unfortunate oh. but I don't think he's concerned for my soul. No? I, I think he thinks I'm going to be just fine when I find out the truth after this life. Oh, know? okay. I, it, it, I don't think he's worried about me in that way. He just, uh, he would love to share it with me. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, in the, before, you know, you said you sort of came out of the closet and became more open about five years or, or so ago. So, during the interim time when you were raising your kids, you know, were you holding big callings? I mean, how... how how did your faith sort of evolve during that period? Well, I was very outspoken and open about some things. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I gave a talk about the stupid Negro doctrine. You know, when you give your two and a half minute talks. Yeah. Wow. You know, and, and I got in some trouble for it, but I wanted to talk about that issue because I thought it was just an absolutely horrible thing, you know. And uh, so I've been outspoken about many things within the church all that time. It's just that part about not believing in God that I wanted to kind of protect my mother from to some degree. Right. Okay. And in fact, I don't even like to say I don't believe in God because uh, believing in something and believing that something is is uh, literal and factual are two very different things. I still believe in Santa Claus. 
but I don't believe there's a, fat, a little fat guy that flies through the sky with nine reindeer. Okay. I don't believe that, but I have a Santa Claus suit that I use, you know, when the church has a party and I just love having the little kids come up there and, and get loved by me and love on me and stuff. You know, I just love that whole thing. As long as they're told the truth at a reasonable time when their mind is ready for that, you know? Yeah. So, so I believe in God and uh, as long as it's inclusive and positive and wonderful, I do not believe in a God that burns my sweet little mother forever. That God can, well, burn I, don't think you, I don't think you want that language on the show here, you know, but uh, that God can take a hike. So um, a lot of, I guess some of the more liberal Mormons would accuse a lot of the ex-Mormons of, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, um, so a lot of people leave the church and they're just like, the church is all bad you know, everything's awful. You can't go to the church. It's a cult. You know, they say all these things and they, they're just out and they don't want anything to do with it. You've apparently found peace in a center there. What, what advice would you give to those people who sort of, you know, determine the church isn't true or isn't what it says it is or, or lose their faith in God? What, what would sort of be your sermon that you'd preach to those guys? When I spoke to the two times I've come to Utah and spoke to that other group, there were about 30 people each time. And it lasted for three and a half, four hours each time. It was long. And I gave different advice to different people right in front of, of the others that I was giving the different advice to. And there was one man and woman with two little kids that I advised to reactivate in the church. I said, you don't have to go there and lie that you believe some guy made the universe. You don't have to do that at all. Go there and embrace the things that your family and you need because they really needed it. Mm -hmm. They had had it before. They were missing it greatly. Their, their boy was getting to be almost 12, and there, there are just things that are going to happen that it's very difficult to find as well done anywhere else, and I didn't see in their lives another option that could do as well, like if they joined the Methodists or something, it wouldn't do the same job for them. They, they had Mormon family, both, both of them, and and it was painful to that whole family. So I just advised them to reactivate, and they have since then I've talked to them. But they, they can be active like I am. They can be active and tell the truth. They don't have to lie to a bishop. That doesn't mean they have to go in a primary class and say everything I've said on in this discussion. I wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't want them to do that. But yeah, let their bishop know the truth, you know, and when you get a calling, make sure that you're you're not uh, kind of taking a calling that you shouldn't have because you don't really believe it. Uh, when they they asked me to be a home teacher again, which I haven't done in quite a while, and, and they assigned me two families, well, I just wanted to make sure that I knew who the families were before I accepted that, and it turns out it's two old families that I've known for years and years. They know exactly where I am, and uh, so I said yes, and I've enjoyed it quite a lot. But those families are aware of who I am and what I am. And and you don't have to pretend. I don't have to pretend. And we can have very positive discussions about all kinds of things. And I, I can wail and wail against the Proposition 8 thing all I want, you know. <laughs> I guess one question comes to my mind is, is um, you know, you're not ever fully accepted uh, as a, um, you know, a, a real Mormons go to the temple. Yeah, you I can't know, do. You know what I, I'm I, I could do that because I know exactly what lies to tell. <laughs> you know, 
I, I could definitely do that, and I could be a bishop. I know exactly what lies to tell. Right. I, that's the way I became a zone leader, you know, uh, a traveling elder. I, I could easily tell lies and and move up in the church if that's what I wanted to do. I don't want to do that. Right. I want to tell the, I want to tell the truth, and I want to help fix some things. Now I talked about that Negro doctrine all my life, and when that when that uh, when that notification came through over the radios and the TV sets, my phone rang off the hook all day long. Mm-hmm. People, have you heard, Brother Murrow, Have you heard? And and some <laughs> of the ones that were calling me were the ones that had fought me the hardest on it. <laughs> They were excited to tell me what had happened. <laughs> you know, I had a, when I, I guess I was about, I was probably about 16 and uh, the girl was probably about 18 and I was very attracted to her, mm. but, but she wasn't much attracted to me, probably partly just because I was younger, you know. That makes a difference. Be- well, you know, because I'm age. a very good-looking guy, you know, <laughs> it, it had to be that I was younger, you know. But <laughs> anyway, she wasn't attracted to me. Uh, anyway, she and her mother were taught by missionaries, and she joined the church, our little branch there, the branch I grew up in. And uh, she became very active. She just came to everything, you know, all the dances, and she gave her two-and-a-half-minute talks and the whole thing, you know. Well, maybe don't give two and a half minute talks when you're 18. So she gave five minute talks or something, you know, but, but, uh, her mother, who also joined, wasn't very active. We hardly ever saw her once in a while. She'd come to a meeting if, if her daughter was given a talk or something, you know, and that was all. Well, it was a whole two years after they joined the church. It was a whole two years before they heard the Negro doctrine. Whoa. One of her grandfathers was a Negro. Now, you wouldn't tell by looking at her at all. But now, all of her plans to marry a return missionary, to go to the temple, to have her little boys be deacons when they turn 12, all of that's gone. Wow. And nobody told her. For two years. Now, if that happened in today's church, it would be a suable offense. You could get a lot of money from the church for that. You think? Uh, in today's church, if they if they didn't tell you something like that and you spent two years of your life dedicating yourself to something, I think it would be a suable offense. Well, I think the church kind of found that out, and that might have been part of the impetus for getting that thing changed. But I'm quite certain that David O. McKay hated that doctrine, and I have reasons for believing that he hated that doctrine. And I know that uh, President Kimball hated that doctrine, and... That's part of why it came through him. Well, it doesn't make any sense to anybody who doesn't think of of, uh, black people as as inferior to white people. It makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense at all unless, you know, it comes from the people's prejudice. And what I was always told growing up, well, we're waiting for the Lord to be ready for them to receive the priesthood. And I said, we wait for him to get ready? He doesn't wait for us to get ready. We wait for him to get ready. Is that what you're teaching me? That we wait for God to get ready? I mean, give me a break. He's the one waiting for us to get ready. (laughs) You know, if it's a a matter of getting ready, then it's us that's holding it up, not him. Well, I think they thought the black people weren't ready to uh, have that responsibility. 
Well, and they're not going to very likely get ready if we don't do some teaching. Well, yeah. So don't, yeah. don't bring them in. Now, they said, you know, we, we give the black people more than any other church. Uh, all they can't have is the priesthood. But it, that was a lie, too. Right. On my mission, we were told by the mission president, if we knock on a door and and a colored person answers, they didn't call them black then. They didn't call them African-American. They, they called them colored, mostly. And that was the nice way of 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 uh, labeling them was to call them colored. So mm-hmm. he said, and if a colored person answered the door, just say, uh, we're looking for the Johnson family. Do they live anywhere around here? <laughs> wow. And he said, you won't be lying because you are looking for the Johnson family. <laughs> it's just the same as any other family. <laughs> Uh, that it, an interesting it'd be definition bad of luck if they were the Johnsons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you're, well, it's a different Johnson. You, you could get around that one easily enough, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, uh. Well, Chuck, so, we, we better uh, wrap it up here. We've uh, really enjoyed your stories and, and getting your wisdom on all kinds of stuff, especially masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Hope that's not the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an important an important topic. Well, in in kind of closing it up, I think religion should be positive in our lives. And if it's not positive, I don't see why we would want to have it. And if it's mostly positive and there are some negatives that can be fixed or repaired or improved, I think uh, that's what what our efforts ought to be about is improving it. Now, whether I stay active the rest of my life or not is up to question. Um, if I feel like some good can be done, I'll probably still be there. But I'm not there because I believe some guy made the universe. I just flat do not believe that. And after the trip around the sun, which was visiting all those 52 religions, quite a few of my friends asked me, well, Chuck, what are you? You know, are you an atheist? Are you an agnostic? What are you? And in the little brown book that you have, I tried to answer that question. And I said, well, I do not believe that there is a living being who put the universe together. So reasonably, you could call me an atheist. On the other hand, something is going on that's beyond my comprehension. I'm a physicist, and I promise you I cannot answer the question of how matter came into existence or how it could have always existed. I can't answer that question. So something is going on that's beyond my comprehension. So you could call me a believer. On the other hand, I don't believe anybody knows what's going on. So you could call me an agnostic. And if you were to just choose one of those terms, agnostic is probably the most accurate, but it doesn't answer the whole question. And I'm all three of those things all the time, not one in a foxhole and another when I'm secure. I'm an atheist and an agnostic and a believer all at the same time every day of my life. Hmm. Well, I can I can empathize with that. Chuck, you've almost made me want to go back to church. Oh, <laughs> 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 well, sounds like something Paul said once. <laughs> Would that there were more more like you. And actually, I think there are more like you. Would that more were willing to speak up. Well, thank you, John. And I've appreciated both you and Zilpha looking at your side and some of the work you do. And uh, I wish you all the success in the world. And uh, 
if there are detractors and people that think you're too negative sometimes, uh, I don't think it's going to hurt in the long run for people to see the other side of things. Well, you always want a certain number of detractors to make sure you're on the right path. <laughs> well, the Smiths, Joseph Smith said, if you don't have any enemies, you're no man at all. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, well thanks so much for for this great hour. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Chuck was gracious enough to give us a whole box of his book. And uh, we're happy to pass those along to people. And they can donate whatever they want to defray the cost that you went through in um publishing those and yeah, we will happily pass that on we're gonna have them at the picnic um i think on amazon they're they're 15 dollars, and we're we're asking for 10 dollars to pass along to chuck so so you can bring along some some money to the picnic for that if you want it's a great little book or we can pass that along to your work <laughs> <laughs> well we can figure that out uh, okay yeah, <laughs> yeah but Z- Z- i've i've glanced through it zilpha has really poured over it it has been a book that she's really enjoyed so you yep. you, you, t- you touched her heart well thank you zilpha that's thank nice you. thank you <laughs> it was oh, fun all right and as always the discussion continues on the website at mormonexpression.com remember the picnic on uh october 9th 9th and the live show on uh november 18th chuck thanks again good night You're welcome bye-bye